0: The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith recorded for org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 14. Fresh mortifications or a demonstration that seeming calamities may be real blessings. The journey of my daughters to town was now resolved upon, Mr Thornhill having kindly promised to inspect their conduct himself and to inform us by letter of their behaviour but it was thought indispensably necessary that their appearance should equal the greatness of their expectations, which could not be done without expense. We debated, therefore, in full council what were the easiest methods of raising money, or, more properly speaking, what we could most conveniently sell. The deliberation was soon finished. It was found that our remaining horse was utterly useless for the plough without his companion, and equally unfit for the road as wanting an eye. It was therefore determined that we should dispose of him for the purposes above-mentioned at the neighbouring fair, and to prevent imposition that I should go with him myself. Though this was one of the first mercantile transactions of my life, yet I had no doubt about acquitting myself with reputation. The opinion a man forms of his own prudence is measured by that of the company he keeps, and as mine was mostly in the family way, I had conceived no unfavourable sentiments of my worldly wisdom. My wife, however, next morning, at parting, after I had got some paces from the door, called me back to advise me, in a whisper, to have all my eyes about me. I had, in the usual forms, when I came to the fair, put my horse through all his paces, but for some time had no bidders. At last a chapman approached, and, after he had for a good while examined the horse round, found him blind of one eye. He would have nothing to say to him. A second came up, but, observing he had a spavin, declared he would not take him for the driving home. A third perceived he had a wind-gall and would bid no money. A fourth knew by his eye that he had the bots. A fifth wondered what a plague I could do at a fair with a blind spavin-galled hack that was only fit to be cut up for the dog-kennel. By this time I began to have a most hearty contempt for the poor animal myself, and was almost ashamed at the approach of every customer. For though I did not entirely believe all the fellows told me, yet I reflected that the number of witnesses was a strong presumption they were right, and St. Gregory, upon good works, professes himself to be of the same opinion. I was in this mortifying situation when a brother clergyman, an old acquaintance who had also business to the fair, came up and, shaking me by the hand, proposed adjourning to a public-house and taking a glass of whatever we could get. I readily closed with the offer, and, entering an ale-house, we were shown into a little back-room where there was only a venerable old man who sat wholly intent over a large book which he was reading. I never in my life saw a figure that prepossessed me more favourably. His locks of silver-grey venerably shaded his temples, and his green old age seemed to be the result of health and benevolence. However, his presence did not interrupt our conversation. My friend and I discoursed on the various turns of fortune we had met—the Whistonian controversy, my last pamphlet, the archdeacon's reply, and the hard measure that was dealt me. But our attention was, in a short time, taken off by the appearance of a youth, who, entering the room, respectfully said something softly to the old stranger. "'Make no apologies, my child,' said the old man, "'to do good is a duty we owe to all our fellow-creatures. Take this, I wish it were more, but five pounds will relieve your distress and your welcome.' The modest youth shed tears of gratitude and yet his gratitude was scarce equal to mine, I could have hugged the good old man in my arms. His benevolence pleased me so." He continued to read, and we resumed our conversation, until my companion, after some time recollecting that he had business to transact in the fair, promised to be soon back, adding that he always desired to have as much of Dr. Primrose's company as possible. The old gentleman, hearing my name mentioned, seemed to look at me with attention for some time and, when my friend was gone, most respectfully demanded if I was in any way related to the great Primrose, that courageous monogamist who had been the bulwark of the Church. Never did my heart feel sincerer rapture than at that moment. "'Sir,' cried I, "'the applause of so good a man as I am sure you are adds to that happiness in my breast which your benevolence has already excited.' You behold before you, sir, that Dr. Primrose, the monogamist, whom you have been pleased to call great. You here see that unfortunate Divine, who has so long, and it would ill become me to say, successfully, fought against the deuterogamy of the age." "'Sir,' cried the stranger, struck with awe, "'I fear I have been too familiar. But you'll forgive my curiosity, sir. I beg pardon.' "'Sir,' cried I, grasping his hand, "'you are so far from displeasing me by your familiarity that I must beg you'll accept my friendship, as you already have my esteem.' "'Then, with gratitude, I accept the offer,' cried he, squeezing me by the hand. "'Thou glorious pillar of unshaken orthodoxy! and, I do behold, I here interrupted what he was going to say, for though, as an author, I could digest no small flattery, yet now my modesty would permit no more.' However, no lovers in romance ever cemented a more instantaneous friendship. We talked upon several subjects. At first I thought he seemed rather devout than learned, and began to think he despised all human doctrines as dross. Yet this no way lessened him in my esteem, for I had for some time begun privately to harbour such an opinion myself. I therefore took occasion to observe that the world in general began to be blamably indifferent as to doctrinal matters, and followed human speculations too much. "'Aye, sir,' replied he, as if he had reserved all his learning to that moment, I sir, the world is in its dotage. And yet the cosmogony or creation of the world has puzzled philosophers of all ages. What a medley of opinions have they not broached upon the creation of the world! Sankaniathan, Manetho, Barosus, and Ocellus Lucanus have all attempted it in vain. The latter had these words, Anakon Arakai Atalutayon Topan, which imply that all things have neither beginning nor end. Manetho also, who lived about the time of Nepucadon Asa, Asa being a Syriac word usually applied as a surname to the kings of that country, as Teglat Fel Asa Nabon Asa, he, I say, formed a conjecture equally absurd, for, as we usually say, ecto biblion cubernates, which implies that books will never teach the world, so he attempted to investigate. But, sir, I ask pardon, I am straying from the question. That he actually was, nor could I for my life see how the creation of the world had anything to do with the business I was talking of, but it was sufficient to show me that he was a man of letters, and I now reverenced him more. I was resolved, therefore, to bring him to the touchstone." but he was too mild and too gentle to contend for victory. Whenever I made any observation that looked like a challenge to controversy, he would smile, shake his head, and say nothing, by which I understood he could say much if he thought proper. The subject therefore insensibly changed from the business of antiquity to that which brought us both to the fair. Mine, I told him, was to sell an horse, and, very luckily indeed, his was to buy one for one of his tenants. My horse was soon produced, and in fine we struck a bargain. Nothing now remained but to pay me, and he accordingly pulled out a thirty-pound note and bid me change it. Not being in a capacity of complying with this demand, he ordered his footman to be called up, who made his appearance in a very genteel livery. "'Here,' Abraham cried he, go and get gold for this, you'll do it at neighbour Jackson's or anywhere. While the fellow was gone, he entertained me with a pathetic harangue on the great scarcity of silver, which I undertook to improve, by deploring also the great scarcity of gold. So that by the time Abraham returned, we had both agreed that money was never so hard to be come at as now. Abraham returned to inform us that he had been over the whole fair, and could not get change, though he had offered half a crown for doing it. This was a very great disappointment to us all, but the old gentleman, having paused a little, asked me if I knew one Solomon Flanborough in my part of the country. Upon replying that he was my next-door neighbour, "'If that be the case then,' returned he, "'I believe we shall deal. You shall have a draft upon him, payable at sight.' and let me tell you, he is as warm a man as any within five miles around him. Honest Solomon and I have been acquainted for many years together. I remember I always beat him at three jumps, but he could hop upon one leg farther than I. A draught upon my neighbour was to me the same as money, for I was sufficiently convinced of his ability. The draught was signed and put into my hands, and Mr. Jenkinson, the old gentleman, his man Abraham, and my horse, Old Brackbury, trotted off very well pleased with each other. After a short interval being left to reflection, I began to recollect that I had done wrong in taking a draught from a stranger, and so prudently resolved upon following the purchaser and having back my horse. But this was now too late. I therefore made directly homewards, resolving to get the draught changed into money at my friend's as fast as possible. I found my honest neighbour smoking his pipe at his own door, and informing him that I had a small bill upon him, he read it twice over. "'You can read the name, I suppose,' cried I, Ephraim Jenkinson. "'Yes,' returned he, "'the name is written plain enough. And I know the gentleman too, the greatest rascal under the canopy of heaven. This is the very same rogue who sold us the spectacles. Was he not a venerable-looking man, with grey hair and no flaps to his pocket-holes?' And did he not talk a long string of learning about Greek and cosmogony, and the world?" To this I replied with a groan, "'Aye,' continued he, "'he has but that one piece of learning in the world, and he always talks it away whenever he finds a scholar in company. But I know the rogue and will catch him yet. Though I was already sufficiently mortified, my greatest struggle was to come in facing my wife and daughters. No truant was ever more afraid of returning to school, there to behold the master's visage, than I was of going home. I was determined, however, to anticipate their fury, by first falling into a passion myself. But, alas, upon entering, I found the family no way disposed for battle. My wife and girls were all in tears, Mr. Thornhill having been there that day to inform them that their journey to town was entirely over the two ladies having heard reports of us from some malicious person about us were that day set out for london he could neither discover the tendency nor the author of these but whatever they might be or whoever might have broached them he continued to assure our family of his friendship and protection i found therefore that they bore my disappointment with great resignation as it was eclipsed in the greatness of their own but what perplexed us most Was to think who could be so base as to asperse the character of a family so harmless as ours, too humble to excite envy, and too inoffensive to create disgust. Chapter